We were all very freaked out. Uh, you know, in the in the 20th century about overpopulation and how, you know, the world was going to cause this mass starvation and all this stuff. You had all this doom saying about all the things that were going to happen. And it turned out for, for lots of different reasons that, that that was not the case. But it's gone, you know, quite a bit now below replacement fertility. And I think that's what started to, to freak people out. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. It's 2007. Spider-Man 3 is the top-grossing film at the box office. Beyonce's Irreplaceable is the biggest hit song. American Idol is the most-watched TV show. 2007 was also the last time that the United States was at replacement-level fertility, which is 2.1 children born per woman. In the years following, through the ups and downs of the Great Recession, the 2016 election, and the COVID-19 pandemic, the rate has fallen to 1.66 children per woman. When you zoom out, you'll see that the American birth rates have been falling for decades. But this is far from a phenomenon isolated to the United States. In 2020, the fertility rate in the UK was 1.6. In Germany, it was 1.5. Finland, 1.4, Denmark and Sweden, 1.7, and in South Korea, a shocking 0.81. In response to these long-run trends, some have advocated pronatalist governmental policies to incentivize more reproduction, or at least to smooth the way for people who want to have more kids. But are these policies effective? Elizabeth Nolan Brown, senior editor at Reason Magazine, says no. In the cover story for the June 2023 issue of Reason, Brown surveys the flagging international reproductive landscape and the government policies that have been enacted to address that problem. In the end, she advocates at a minimum, not panicking. Today, I talked to Elizabeth Nolan Brown about falling birth rates, failing pronatalist policies, and how we should think about a world where fewer and fewer people are expecting. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Elizabeth Nolan Brown, welcome to Act in Line. Hi, thank you for having me. So your essay, the cover story in the June 2023 issue of Reason is entitled Storks Don't Take Orders from the State, Falling Birth Rates, Pronatalist Policies, and the Limits of Population Control. So you start out in the beginning um, really talking about the diagnosing the problem, which has been declining birth rates over time. Why don't you lay out the landscape as you see it? What has been happening to uh, not just here in the United States to uh, birth rates, but what has been happening around the world? As you did a survey of all of this, what did you discover? 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing um, how many countries around the world are experiencing declining birth rates. Um, there are a few. Uh, I mean, so more than about more than half of countries are, according to to the latest data, which comes from 2020. Um, a lot of countries in Africa are not. There are some countries in the Middle East that are not. But for the most part, throughout um, Amer the Americas. And throughout Europe and throughout Asia, we've seen declining birth rates. And um, 2.1 is is replacement level fertility, the amount of fertility, you know, the amount of children needed that each woman needs to have in order to stave off population decline. And it very few countries now are are above replacement level for utility in, in Europe and the United States. And even Latin America and places like that are starting to get closer and closer to replacement level fertility and have seen massive declines over the past few decades. Do we have any idea or is there any consensus out there on why this is happening? Because as you noted, it's happening uh, in places that are really very, very different. You know, the, the two areas of the world that you noted, um, Africa and the Middle East, uh, perhaps we could point to, um, you know, a lot of uh, predominantly Muslim countries and maybe that there's something with that. Is there any consensus uh, or idea on why this is happening? Because again, it's the decline we can see really going back a while now. The I believe like early 1900s is when it really starts to decline and there are peaks and valleys throughout there, but the trajectory has been downward. Yeah. And that's what's really interesting is because people have a lot of pet theories about about why this decline is happening. Um, you know, just on, on the right, you get a lot of arguments that involve culture, not valuing motherhood, um, you know, you know, just too much liberalism, feminism, things like that. On the left, you get a lot of arguments that involve not having a strong social social safety net. And, you know, we need more benefits for parents. We need more government subsidies for childcare, things like that. None of these really these explanations that are that are popular in the United States, at least really pan out when you look around the world, because you can look at, like you said, um, countries that have vastly different cultures, political systems, economic systems, um, you know, like cultural climates in terms of, of what they value. And they're they're all experiencing this sort of decline. Um, you know, the thing that ties together the countries that aren't is, is that they are generally uh, very poor or very repressive. So they've completely, you know, outlawed, you know, birth control or a sort of any means to control fertility. Um, you know, so it seems like pretty much any anytime you give people the option to have fewer children, um, they are they are taking it. And, and the technological means to avoid having, you know, a ton of children, they are taking it. Um, it is important to note, though, that I think is also kind of goes against the narrative is that at least in the United States isn't being driven by a decline or by an increase in childlessness primarily. Um, we're we're around historic levels or at least, you know, levels of the past 150 years for the percentage of people that have zero children. It's primarily driven by families, people that have children having fewer children in the past. So we're seeing a lot more one and two child families and a lot fewer four plus child families. Interestingly, three child families have remained the same. Interesting. The uh, what you noted there about the the countries where you're seeing higher fertility rates being poor on average, I, I'm wondering if you saw anything about this, and, and if you didn't, that that's fine. Maybe this is, wasn't something that uh, you looked at at all in researching this. Uh, but if you were to go back to you know 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, at a time where people were having a lot more children, but there was also a much higher likelihood of children dying. Um, yeah. 
I, I wonder if there's any kind of a correlation that may exist there that in the places in the world where perhaps we might expect, given the level of poverty, lack of technological advancement, uh, lack of modern medicine being as readily available, um, higher uh, infant and child mortality being associated at all with uh, those higher birth rates in those kinds of countries. I didn't specifically look at, look into that, um, but I think that that's a pretty safe bet that that is, that it is part of it. And also the fact that, you know, because a, a big part of why people, you know, because as I, we said earlier, this has been going on for a long time. This isn't just, you know, the past 20 or 30 years. This isn't just since the baby boom. This has been, you know, the baby boom was sort of an anomaly, but it was actually in motion 50, 60 years before that. Um, actually since in the United States, since the 1700s, you see this, you know, perpetual decline in fertility from down from seven to five and so on. Uh, and you know, it comes in terms of two things, like you said, one people used to have a lot of children because a lot of them unfortunately died very young or died in, you know, being born. And also they were economically productive. You know, when you had a, when you had a big family farm or something, you needed a lot of children to work it. And, you know, the more children you had, the more output you could do when suddenly children went from sort of being, you know, a net gain to your finances and to your family's economic situation to something, you know, to a strain on that situation. People had fewer children or, or felt the need to, you know, they didn't need to have these children to, to work on their farms or things like that. So I think that that makes sense what you said with parts of the world where, you know, there's still a very high child mortality rate and also parts of the world that are still still more agrarian or, you know, more based on things where having more children could be an advantage economically that that we probably is part of why we see higher rates there, too. Again, noting that this is a trend that's been going on for quite a while. It does feel, though, like the concern over it is of rather recent vintage. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the concern about human population around the world that we were talking about was the population bomb and overpopulation being one of the biggest concerns. And again, that against the backdrop of perhaps the the peaks and valleys of the uh, the timeline. But again, with the overall trajectory being downward. Um why do you think we the nature of the conversation has changed, that we've gone from being concerned about the problems, the theoretical problems of overpopulation to now being very concerned about replacement level fertility and underpopulation uh, for a whole lot of reasons that you lay out in your essay? Yeah, I think part is that we just reached a tipping point, you know, um, as 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 the concerns about overpopulation we're we're already decreasing for for various reasons you know we realized that we had you know better better farming better able to feed all these people things like that um as, as that was happening fertility kept declining and it wasn't just going from 5 down to 3 down to 2 it was you know going now it's in in some countries um I think it's South Korea, it's like 0.81. In you know, a few countries, it's right around one. In the United States, it's 1.6. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of countries around Europe is somewhere in the 1.4 to 1.7 range. So it's gone, you know, quite a bit now below replacement fertility. And I think that's what started to, to freak people out because when you get to that point, you know, what you're what you're, you know, when people talk about this, obviously there are some people who are just like, we need to make more babies because babies are good, families are good, and and you know, we want that. But a lot of times when people are talking about this, what they're really talking about is population decline. And they don't want to have population decline because with that can come a lot of things, you know, lowered productivity, um, perhaps economic stagnation or less innovation. The big one being, you know, fewer people to support pension systems like, you know, Medicare and Social Security here or things like that. So 
a lot of these fears are are driven by this this feeling that oh no we we keep declining and if we keep declining even more pretty soon we're you know we're going to see population decline at overall and that's going to create all these all these other problems i i can't help from observing there that there is uh there's clearly an element to some of the panic over the decline in uh how many children we're having being connected to what you pointed out. There's the sustainability of a lot of social welfare state kind of spending. So on, on this, it's just a perfect example of how government operates sometimes that on one hand, you have an unsustainable system in things like social security and Medicaid. And on the other hand, you have new government policies. And I want to get into those in a moment here, what other governments are doing to try to up the birth rates to be able to support the otherwise unsustainable and still frankly, unsustainable systems like social security and Medicaid. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of perverse, isn't it? Um, That, you know, you have these kind of huge push to, to make people have more babies solely so that they can support an, you know, a, an unsustainable social welfare system. Um, which is why, you know, some of the people that I talked to, some of the academics that I talked to were like, look, what we need to do is stop, free, stop concentrating on just make more babies, make more babies, because as, as I'm sure we'll get to in a second, you know, a lot of these pronatalist policies don't really work anyways, but we need to start looking at fixing the problems, the underlying problems, you know, like, so if, if the problem is that we have these unsustainable old age pension programs and things like that, we need to fix those programs instead of trying to do this proxy thing of getting people to have more babies. Because frankly, you know, those programs are unsustainable right now. Even if we started, you know, having a huge increase in the birth weight right now, they're already facing a lot of strain because we've already got the baby boom population being so large. We've already had declining fertility. So we already don't have enough people to sustain them in, in you know, anything like a, a manner that isn't going to be brutal for, for younger people. And, and for somebody on the side of the argument who thinks that uh, it, it's just a good thing to have more kids and more people and it makes it a more interesting world. It, it would also get us out of this argument that is uh, a much more utilitarian argument that more people should be having more kids in order to support these government systems that, as you pointed out, aren't sustainable on their current trajectories. The You laid out a couple of examples early on in the essay of what countries are doing um, South Korea, for example, Japan, Singapore. Uh, give us some examples of what these countries are doing to try to encourage people to have more children and the success or lack of success that they are seeing with those policies. Yeah. So, you know, I think Singapore is a really good, interesting example because um, they've, they've just been doing a ton. They actually were, you know, discouraging people for for a few decades from trying from having more than one children. And then they realized that they really needed to, to, to change that because they were having a rapidly declining population. So then they really, for the past several decades, been going all in on trying to get people to have more babies. Um, these days, they offer $8,000 for a first or second baby and $10,000 for every kid thereafter. Um, they raised that for up a couple thousand dollars per, per child from, from just a few years back. Um, they offer tax rebates to parents. They offer 16 weeks of government-mandated paid uh, maternity leave for, for married mothers. They give housing subsidies to parents. They um, give parents because the state sort of places people in, in housing and schools. So they give parents who have kids and then who have more kids um, certain priorities in determining where they can live and what schools they can go to if they have more children. They give grandparents subsidies to move near their their um, families, hoping that that will help with childcare and things like that. Um, they give these child development accounts that the, that the government puts money into savings for the kids. And uh 
you know, so that's been going on for the past, you know, several decades. And in 1990, their their fertility rate was 1.8. And now it's around 1.1 or 1.2 the past few years. So even even with all of that being done, they're they still haven't been able to raise fertility rates or or stop them from declining even. And and those are the same sort of policies you you see in a lot of places, um, offering, you know, different, different uh, amounts of money for children. I think Singapore is one of the most, which is why I, I brought that up. But, you know, you will see various kinds of, of direct sort of uh, payments to parents. You will see, obviously, things like, you know, child tax credits. Um, you will see some, some, some weirder sort of more symbolic things like Russia gives people a day or two off per year to, to you know, make babies. Um, and it's like, you know, take take time off work and, and get to making babies day. Um, you see, uh, and you see a lot of then the social welfare policies too, like especially in in various European countries and Nordic countries. You see, you know, um, increasingly long maternity leaves being offered. Now you see more paternity mandatory paternity leave too being offered. You see subsidized childcare and things like that. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. That there there seems to be generally two different nature policies, ones that are for the benefit of the child, ones that are for the benefit of the parents of the child. And really, really neither seem to be all that effective. I mean, one of the piece lines in, in your essay that I highlighted, um, policy reforms in Norway in the late 1980s and early 1990s that substantially expanded paid maternity leave had no discernible effect on fertility rates. Um, so it's like it doesn't seem to matter whether the policies are targeted towards uh, benefits for the children themselves or benefits for the parents or both. They just all is it the case that they're all just generally seem to be pretty ineffective? Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically what the research has found overall. There are, you know, there, there are things like it'll find that pe- they can change the timing of, of births, you know, certain policies might cause people to have their kids a few years earlier. Um, but it's they found that it doesn't tend to increase the the overall number of births. I guess the only thing we could say that is, you know, that is kind of unknowable is if some of these places hadn't done these policies, would they be looking at even more drastic declining birth rates? And I guess, you know, that is possible. But it certainly it hasn't in any of the countries that that have really went all in on them, stopped them from still declining quite a bit over since, you know, the 90s. You certainly can't prove the counterfactual. Is, right. is there anything out there that you've seen that I get it at best when we're talking about the outcomes of policies like them, like this, uh, we're talking about correlation because being able to establish actual causation between the policy and the result. Uh, is there any place out there, though, that is at least pointing towards some kind of a correlation between the policies that they're engaging in trying to promote people having more kids with a result of an uptick in the birth rate? Um, not not really. <laughs> not, that I've, not that I came across. One of the things that you pointed out in there, too, is about uh, we were just talking about as well, the evolution of technology and the kinds of things that make it easier for people to take time uh, to themselves in order to have kids and raise kids. Uh, There was something really interesting in there about the amount of time people spend parenting now versus the amount of time that they used to spend parenting when birth rates were higher. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Why Why do you think that we're seeing this correlation now to – I thought about it in terms of technological advancement, that there are so many different things that 
you would otherwise have to attend to, like use the Roomba as an example, right? You know, you don't even have to spend 15 minutes vacuuming your house. You can just turn the Roomba on. We've had a lot of stuff like that taken off of our plates as adults. And it seems to be that we're pouring more of that time into our children. Tell us, tell us more about what you found there and how do you interpret that? Yeah, there, there's a couple, there's a bunch of data sort of showing the same thing. Um, I think, you know, one of the study I mentioned is there's a 2016 study that the uh, average mother in 1965 spent half as much time on childcare. And now the average dad uh, does quadruple the time of childcare as they would have in 1965. So yeah, we're seeing a lot more time spent on childcare for for both moms and dads. Um, with dads, you know, I think that that's more we can say that, you know, the average dad was not spending a lot of time because we had a lot more one parent households and stuff like that. And there was also just not this cultural expectation that the dads do as much childcare. But in general, I think we can look at technology, like you said. Um, you know, you used to have to spend moms used to have to spend a lot more time on on housework because there was not, you know, there were not all these options. You had to spend a lot more time on uh, cooking and cleaning and things like that because there were not all these different, you know, easy to eat alternatives to to you know home cooked meals or or you know doing everything from scratch. But I think also there are probably just explanations that, yeah, people like spending time with their kids, hopefully. And as you free people from from all these sort of things like, uh, you know, having to spend all this more time on house care and things like that, people want to spend time with more their their kids more often. Um, and I think that, so, you know, it's one of the many things, as, as I tried to point out throughout this article, um, I, I don't think it's all bad when we look at some of the trends in modern parenting. And I don't think it's all bad when we look at the fact that fertility has has declined because air birth rates have declined because within this there's lots of small nuggets of, of of good news like that and i think you know a lot of times you'll have people point to these sorts of things showing that people spend more on childcare today and they see that as a negative and they'll say like well no wonder we're having fewer kids it takes so much more effort to raise kids today and you're like i don't i don't think it's clear that that's the way it's cutting that people are having fewer kids because it's taking more time i think people are investing more in their kids because they have fewer kids. And so they don't, you know, they're allowed to invest more in each kid and because they have less time being spent on, on these other things, like other sorts of household drudgery. And instead they actually get to spend more time with their children. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's interesting that, uh, the, availability of more time hasn't necessarily led to a desire to have more kids, which I think is it, it perhaps is an interesting commentary on the way uh, we could perhaps tie this back to the phenomenons of things like helicopter parenting, because, you know, going back to like 1965 and even you know, I, I was born in 1982 and uh, recall you know, I'm sure your childhood was uh, probably similar in this respect of like, you know, recall the just being kind of let out of the house at certain points in time to go do your own thing and to come back. And the concern over the well-being of kids and parents monitoring it so meticulously um, has increased. And, and it, it always reminds me of the the reality that the world is a much less uh, dangerous place now than it was in 1965. But the perception certainly seems to be that the world has gotten more dangerous. People are more scared about the things that could potentially happen to their kids if they're left unsupervised, even though if you actually look at the data, it's far less likely that something like that is going to befall them. And if something like that does happen, in almost all of those cases, it is not the 
bad, um, you know, lifetime movie style story where it is just some random person has abducted a child. It's somebody often connected to the family. Um, So I think that's something interesting playing out in the background as well. 100%. I've had this conversation with my parents like about a year ago or something. We were sitting in and they were talking just, you know, about that they're they're both peak boomers, middle middle boomers. And, you know, they're talking about how much safer the world was when they were young and, you know, how it just seems like there's all these murders now. And it wasn't like that when they were when they were young or even when they were in high school. So we just, you know, my husband and I just pulled up some, some stats on murders in Cincinnati where we live. And it's drastically lower now than it was at any point in their their, you know, childhood or their their teenage years. And so it is just amazing how much the, the reality of, of situations like that don't don't align with people's perceptions and how much I think it's affected by uh, technology, the rapidity yeah. of information and social media. This has been one of my yeah. observations about social media for quite a while is that you know it makes things that are thousands of miles away feel like they're happening in your backyard. Right. You know about everything that's happening bad in, in your city and in cities around the world. And it feels like this constant onslaught, whereas before, yeah, you just didn't you didn't hear about it. People were blissfully unaware when when things were much worse in terms of crime. Uh, I want to return to some of the things, uh, cultural changes that we've experienced over the period of time that you're documenting here uh, that probably influenced this. What impact do you think um, the entry of women into the workforce had on the overall trajectory of the number of kids that we're having? Uh, And what impact do you think the advent of the sexual revolution had on the number of kids that we're having? So the, the, question about women entering the workforce is really interesting because, um, you know, on the one hand, you see these the, the fertility rates that that came since the post-baby boom era really start as more and more women entered the workforce in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so it's kind of like, okay, you know, case closed, right? Like, it must be because because women are working more. But there's, there's also a lot of interesting tidbits that sort of challenge that idea because then, um, you know, um, as as more women entered the workforce in the 90s and early 2000s, in the United States at least, um, the the birth rate ticked back up a while. And then as labor force participation went back down in, in starting in the, the mid-aughts, um, you had you had the uh, birth rate start dropping really low. Uh, in Europe, there was a study of, of all these different countries and it looked at women's you know, entry into the workforce between, um, I think between the 60s and, and the 90s. And it found that uh, in countries where women's workforce participation was the lowest, a lot of them actually had the, the steepest declines in fertility and now had the lowest birth rates, places like Italy and Spain. Um, in some countries where you had the highest women's workforce participation, you actually had birth rates stay much more stable. So there's actually not as much of a one-to-one correlation between women entering the workforce and and lower fertility rates as, as you know, you might expect. And I think that you know, part of the reason we think that that definitely is, is because there was a really steep drop in in the seventies, especially in fertility rates, and you know that did that did coincide with a ton of women entering the workforce. Um, I think maybe there was something about you know going into the workforce back then that required women to feel like they needed to you know not have children or or have fewer children. But I think we've we sort of started to reverse that a little bit. There there are various signs. I mean, there there's things like um. You know, people that used to get advanced degrees would have many fewer children and they still have fewer children than their than their counterparts that don't. 
but it's but it's going back up. People who have um, master's degrees and PhDs even are, are now starting to have more and more children. So I think we're starting to see a sort of over the past few decades, a, a reverse in this, you know, feeling that that women couldn't be, you know, um, go get a lot of education or be entering the workforce and still still have, you know, any kids or more than one kid. Um, the other part, though, the sexual revolution, I mean, if we're talking about just in terms of like the pill and things like that, birth, you know, or all sorts of birth control methods being available, I think that's a much more convincing explanation because you know this does this does all coincide with with easy easier access to birth control as well and i think that that yeah has made a huge difference on um, the fact that it allows people to, to to even you know to to avoid parenthood altogether or to time their families in a certain way you know we see a lot of people that still do become mothers especially in the millennial generation um you know a lot of people are becoming mothers later in life and and so they're able to actually, you know, avoid motherhood throughout their 20s and start having kids in their 30s. And that wouldn't have been possible if they, you know, planned on having sex at all a couple back well, and, in the mid-century. <laughs> and, uh, and, and given the uh, amount of time or the, the age at which uh, childbearing becomes, the risk of complications from childbearing becomes more pronounced, the delay in marriage, the delay in childbearing would then push people up against that uh I guess the, the the limits of the the age where it starts becoming um, the risks start becoming more pronounced. Well, that's that's so one of the big things, yeah, is that we are seeing, you know, over the past. What, another of the good news things is that part of the decline is is that we've just seen such a massive drop in teen pregnancy since the '90s. So that's you know very very and, and even just going further back, we've seen an even more massive drop since you know um, the '60s and '70s. So that's that's part of the good news. Um, we've also though seen, you know, yes, a decline in women in their 20s having kids. And at the same time, we've seen an increase in women in their 30s and even women in their 40s having kids. Um, birth rates for, for those cohorts have gone up amongst the millennial generation. Um, so, you know, for a while, people thought maybe it was just millennial women were timing their timing their fertility different and that they actually would catch up to earlier generations in terms of fertility rates. Uh, but it, it, it while there there has been some of that, um, it, it hasn't been enough to, you know, totally offset the decline. Because as as you said, you know, as people, a lot of times people are having kids, but then they're still not able to have, you know, four or five or kids, you know, if they're if they're not starting until their 30s. Um, but you are seeing a lot more women that are that are older having babies. That is that is one increasing spot in, in US birth rates. There's a, a couple of things that I want to focus in on there. Let's start um, first with uh, we can be a little bit self-diagnosing here since we're both uh, millennials and to be hyper-specific about it, um, I'm, I'm told we're elderly millennials and I have a bone to pick with whoever coined that uh, terminology for us, but uh, that is neither here nor there. See, I think it's elder millennial. We're just the eldest of the millennials. I, not, not elderly. I read it as elderly millennial. I'll have to go back and double check that, but uh, maybe I was just so induced into rage by somebody's typo or autocorrect problem that it stuck with me. Um, why do you think that people who fall within to our generational cohort and my whole spiel aside about how generational cohorts as ways of talking about these things are generally dumb and unhelpful, um, we have seen those delays. People who are getting uh, really starting with our millennial generation, getting married later, having kids later. Is there any literature, any research that's been done that offers any explanations for why it was 
you know, people like us born in the early to mid 1980s that started this trend of pushing all this stuff off to later in life? Um, so I, I talked to this demographer, um, Philip Levine from, from Wellesley University, and, you know, he he's looked at a lot of the research on that and, and done a lot of stuff on this. And, um, you know, he said that uh, this is this is kind of tangential to your point, but, you know, um, he pointed out that a lot of times the birth rates really started to decline during the Great Recession and have not picked up since then um, after having been increasing for a little bit. So a lot of times people think like, oh, it must have been the Great Recession, but the the effects kept going way past when you would think, you know, that would be the effect. And, and they were also bigger than, than that would explain on its own. So people have come up with all these different explanations for why, um, you know, 2007 or around that time was, was some sort of breaking point. You know, what happened at that point in time or within those few years after that, that must have convinced people not to have to have as many children. And he thinks that we're looking at it wrong and we should stop looking at something that happened then. And we should be looking further back and looking at, you know, the cohort of of people who were coming of age because in 2007 was right when um, millennials reached, you know, what traditionally was the start of sort of or, you know, peak childbearing years. So actually it's, you know, he says something, it's something bigger about this cohort's decisions around how to time their their major life events and things like that. Um, and you can look at all these different explanations people have, like, oh, it must be housing prices going up during this time, or it must be, you know, just all these different things. And if you look at them, it just, none of those really checks out. So it, it definitely is something about, you know, um, our generation's sort of general lifestyle, lifetime, lifetiming decisions. Uh, I, as far as what what those are, I mean, I think I, I don't know. And and if he didn't have an explanation either, I think that you know you can point to a lot a lot of different things. Um, you can probably point to you know the fact that there's we we place more pressure on people to to start um, you know to start their careers to get their education and start their careers before before they start you know thinking about marriage and children much more so than we did in earlier generations. Can maybe say that for for later Gen Xers and earlier millennials that a lot of them were the products of sort of um you know the the big divorce boom in the seventies and eighties and a lot of them might have been products of broken homes or a lot of them might have seen their their mothers who were the first generation of you know women really entering the workforce and trying to have kids at the same time might have seen their mothers struggling a lot with it because it wasn't you know as um, I'm not saying it's easy still, but but I think it was harder back then. So maybe there's something about people watching, you know, their mothers seem miserable with having a lot of children and trying to work at the same time. Um, I think you can, you can, you know, uh, just the way we treat adolescents, you know, we extend, we keep extending adolescents from teenage years up into the twenties and stuff. So we we act like, you know, young adults are are our children for a lot longer, which kind of I think doesn't, you know, make them feel like they're too young to get married and have kids. Um, I think, yeah, just a lot of different things that you could that you could point to as plausible explanations for for why. I, I always feel inclined myself to be somewhat dismissive of the narrative that's put together of how millennials have endured these different exogenous shocks um, yeah. over their kind of young adult lives. So, you know, I, I was a sophomore in college when 9-11 happens, and then I'm a couple years into my post-college career when the Great Recession happens. And, you know, then when you're coming up on, let's put 40 as a cap on that, you know, kind of right before that point in time where you're getting, you know, out of that kind of beginning 
beginning of your life and career where you're establishing a family and having kids, uh, we have a global pandemic. So on, on, you know, on one hand, I'm always suspicious of those grand narrative kind of explanations for problems like this. But I also just don't find myself having lived through it entirely capable of dismissing the impact that those that kind of again over 20 years rapid succession of events quote unquote had on people in our generation and the decisions on their lives that they made as a result of those kinds of things yeah i think you know it's probably not any one thing or any two or three things you know i think that there's probably so many different factors that that have shifted our our decision making um just you know one other one there's a lot of negative ways people look at relationship formation nowadays and think, you know, people are, people are waiting, waiting too long to get married and things like that. But you couldn't say in a positive way that, you know, um, we're, we're much more likely than, than earlier generations also to feel like we don't have to be paired up or we don't have to be married or that, and when we do get married, we want to make sure that it's to the right person and we want to make sure that it's for the right reasons. And so maybe people are much less likely to, to get married just because they think like, oh, you know, I'm getting older. I need to get married. I need to have kids and things like that. Um, you know, I am, I am 40 right now. I am pregnant with my second child. I had my first one, um, in 2021. So I'm definitely on this, you know, millennial, uh, later pregnancy, later child rearing, um, trajectory. And for me, you know, I just speak to my own personal situations. It's just, you know, I didn't get married till I was 35. I just didn't meet a person who was, you know, I wanted to marry until, until later in, in life, um, it wasn't, you know, you hear a lot about like, oh, their millennials just don't realize that they have, you know, that their fertility declines with age or they don't, they're just too invested in their careers. But I think that there's, you know, I, I'm sure that's some people, but I think that that's a little bit overblown. And a lot of times it's just people would have children earlier, but, you know, their life circumstances just don't allow it. So, um that seems to be a cultural rub, right? So it's like if we've we have moved away from a culture that uh, largely inculcates into people that one of those things that you do earlier on in life to begin establishing yourself is to find someone, get married, and start having kids. Um, to one that I think uh, what does change that, who that puts the you start developing your career and your job prospects and all of that education and then career and then family first. So there does seem to be. Um, you know, to kind of borrow from, I guess, like the, the Brookings success sequence kind of way of looking at this, the sequence of events that used to take place does yeah. seem to have been shuffled around. Yes, definitely. One other thing I wanted to, to get your thoughts on, um, I've seen data that uh, suggests that there's a gap in between what women report as the number of kids that they would like to have and then the number of kids that they actually do end up having. Um, and, you know, from my, I'm not an economist. I have a degree in music. I'm just pretending to be one for the purpose of this conversation. Um, Economist response to that, I believe, would largely be, be that this is revealed preference, right? So people say they want X, but their actions actually reveal that they, run, they want Y. Um, do you think that's a sufficient explanation for the gap that exists in between what people say? I mean, when it comes to a lot of economic interactions, I'm perfectly on board with the revealed preference um, being a good explanation of all of this. But – I know there's something about childbearing and child rearing that just like seems to be markedly different. You could have those kids, you know, rather easily if you wanted to. And people are clearly choosing not to, despite stating a desire to have more than they're actually having. What what if any insights do you uh, do you have on what we're seeing there? 
Yeah. So first, just to you know, put this in perspective, we, we, you know, we still see people um, even in the, I think there was, I talked to a woman who, who measured um, Gen Xers and, and millennials and, you know, still right around two is the, you know, what people say is the ideal number of children or their, their intended number of children. And, and we're not up to that because we're at 1.6 is, is our fertility rate. So it's not a huge gap, but there, but there is a gap. Um, the the ideal fertility rate has declined over time so there there is definitely it has gone down as actual fertility has do- gone down and um scott winship at aei he he joined us for a conversation um with with reason tv recently and and he's actually has a lot of he's looked at a lot of data that maybe challenges the idea that that people are having way fewer kids than they that they want to have um, but but if we look at but yes, there is a lot of you know if we just look at the what people say versus the one point six fertility rate, we can see that. And I I think we can look at yes, this as a revealed preference thing because you got to two things I think we should really see is you know when you ask someone about ideal fertility, sometimes that's not the same as saying what how many kids do you want to have or do you plan to have. You know people may mean different things by that. They may think, oh, the ideal family is two, but they don't, you know, or whatever, four, but they don't really think that they're going to be that. Um, but even when, you know, people are saying that that it's their intended plan, these surveys tend to be asked of of people that are, you know, in their eight from the 18 into their mid-20s range. A lot of these are done with with younger people. So um I think we can say, you know, that 18-year-olds, 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds even are not always the best judge of what they will want as their life goes by. So I I don't think we should put total stock in the idea that, oh, because someone said when they were 22 that they wanted to have four kids, then they only had two kids. That means that they were thwarted in their fertility goals. Because, you know, a lot happens. You might You might have two kids and then realize, oh, I love just having two children. I have enough time for them. I have enough money for them. I, I don't want to have more because I'm I'm happy with the number of children I have. You might realize this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. And I don't, you know, I don't have the the resources, emotional or financial to have to have more children. Um, you just, you know, you might realize that actually I'm really fulfilled in my career or I really like traveling. And so I thought I wanted to have this many children, but a bigger family would make that much harder to do. And I actually now priorities prioritize these other things as life goes on. So so I'm very convinced that, you know, asking people when they're when they're very young how many kids they want is is not, you know, the best indicator of of their true desires in some way. You know, I think that revealed preferences definitely, definitely are a play here. Cause so much changes. I mean, we don't, we don't sort of believe that whatever uh, you know, people that are in their early 20s say about what they want to do for their career, we, you know, Tons of people change careers, and we're not worried that they're being all thwarted in their in their life ambitions. So I just think it's it's yeah, I think it's sort of the same thing when it comes to this. Before we move on, I do want to go back real quick to uh, one of the countries that we didn't talk about because it comes up uh, frequently in conversations that we have here at the Acton Institute as we've looked at the uh, the rise of the uh, so-called new right, and that is uh, constantly referencing Hungary uh, yes. as an example and a model that should be followed. Um, it, this is one of the areas that I often hear Hungary referenced as uh, a supposed template for us here in the United States. What is or has Hungary been doing and what, if any success, have they been seeing there? Um, I 
I'm not sure precisely what Hungary has been has been doing. I didn't look closely at their things. I know that they've had a lot of, you know, um, this the same sort of economic programs and sort of cultural propaganda aimed at at parents as as um as a lot of countries who are who are really trying hard to raise birth rates have. And uh just they're they're on par with the United States birth rate. I think theirs was right around 1.6 um also in, in 2020. So for for all of this, they have not, you know, drastically in, increased their birth rates either. So as we kind of come to the uh, conclusion here, the the final two sections of your essay uh, are subheaded: uh, "Keep calm and start adapting, and don't panic." Um, which I think the latter is always pretty good advice. Um, but the question is, how much should we be concerned about? this trend. Um, As we noted at the beginning of the conversation, there are a lot of different reasons why people are concerned about this. You have um, advocates for, uh, you know, more families and more kids just being a good in and of itself. Um, You do have people who are concerned from the economic and uh, the sustaining of uh, government programs perspective on all of this uh, uh, caring for, well, caring for an older population just in general, but also the financial cost of caring for an older population. Um, so there is, is, this is one of those topics that there is a lot of panic about. So um, I guess we'll, we'll kind of come to a conclusion here. I'll start by asking how, how big of a problem do you really think this is and how concerned should we be about it? And then we'll get into the what, if anything, do you think can be done uh, to address it, the declining birth rates as an issue? So this might just be my my general uh, sort of disposition is is to not, you know, be be very panicky or concerned about the the big changes that everyone is like, oh my god, this is going to spell the end of everything. Because I tend to think that you know we we figure out how to how to adapt and things like that. So so my answer is that I I am not terribly concerned. Um, as I said, you know, I don't think we're looking at a situation where people are being massively thwarted in their in their fertility goals, which would be a cause for concern. You know, if, if people are if women are just not able to have, you know, the children they want, I think that would, you know, not not a cause for government intervention, but it would be a cause for concern. But I I don't think that there's actually, you know, that much data to support that. I don't think that there's a lot of data suggesting that people are all out there wanting to have more kids and and you know the economics are of of the situation are preventing it. I just think um a lot of these these you know roadblocks that that might be concerning don't seem to actually exist. So what we're what we're looking at then is people are choosing to have the amount of kids that they're having. And I don't think that that is a reason for concern. I think that's actually kind of, you know, a good thing. It's a it's a it's a positive idea that people are able to control the amount of children that they have and limit the amount of children that they have. And as we said earlier, um, you know, it this isn't a situation where where we're seeing, you know, drastic increases in people having zero kids. It's just a people having smaller families. People want to have smaller families so they feel like they can invest more time in each children and just invest more resources in each children. Again, that that could very well be looked at as a good thing too. Um, so I think there's just like a lot of ways that you look at at the situation, you know, leaving aside the population decline potential for a moment. I think there's just a lot of ways that you look at the situation and say, oh, people are choosing to have smaller families. That is that is very good. It's a sign of, you know, freedom. It's a sign of progress, economic progress. It's a sign of of people being able to, you know, choose their own destinies better and things like that. As far as uh, if we should be worried about population decline, 
I don't think we're there yet, you know, be, and, and there's definitely a lot of things we can do to to stave that off, especially in a country like the United States, which has historically been very, very open to immigration. And so, you know, one of the best ways we we go about if we're worried about, you know, native born Americans not producing enough children uh, to get us to replacement level fertility, we let more immigrants in. So that's, you know, that's one big thing. Um and and also there there are things that might surprise us, you know, as as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we were all very freaked out, uh, you know, in the in the 20th century about overpopulation and how, you know, the world it was going to cause this mass starvation and all this stuff. You had all this doom saying about all the things that were going to happen. And it turned out for for lots of different reasons that 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 was not the case. And I think that, you know, that we're likely to see that here. There's there's a lot of things. I don't think we're going to see suddenly, you know, going back to a ton of, you know, four and five children families. But I think that there there's an indication that we may, you know, we may reach a plateau of where we're, we're just going to be at our fertility rates. And also there are things that could, you know, change it. Um, as, I, as I mentioned in the article, you know, technology could could play a difference. Um, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people who want to have children nowadays who, who are unable to. Um, I, I know it seems like a ton of people and, and not necessarily all, all older um, women who, you know, just of all ages who are going through IVF because they've uh, they've had fertility issues. And so that's that's helped a lot of people, but that's still, you know, prohibitively expensive for a lot of families. So as, as that technology gets better, as, as other sorts of technologies get better, we may see more and more people who want to become parents and, and aren't currently able to be able to. That was a lot of answer to that question. Sorry, that was kind of all over the place, but. Elizabeth Nolan Brown is a senior editor at Reason and the main author of Reason's morning newsletter, The Reason Roundup. She's the author of the cover story in the June 2023 issue of Reason magazine, Storks Don't Take Orders from the State, Falling Birth Rates, Pronatalist Policies, and the Limits of Population Control, which we've been discussing today. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.